Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in with us. If this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. We're in week four of a series where we're going through the book of Colossians, which is a letter about a big Jesus for life's big problems. This week, we're talking about how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is such a mystery. Jesus, somehow God and man, was willing to die for us and then live in us. He is our hope of glory. Thanks again for tuning in. Here's our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Good morning. So last week I, I typed newborn Jewish baby into the search bar. And then just at random, I picked one out. I tell you, I, I don't have any clue whether that's what Jesus really looked like, but it'll do for now. Just figured that Jesus as a baby was probably a cute little guy, probably resembling this little guy. And then there's this song that we sing at Christmas, Mary, Did You Know? Hmm. Most of you guys know that song. We sing it at Christmas. It's a little richer than most of the Christmas carols that we do sing. Mary, did you know that this little guy would one day walk on water? You look down and how could she? Mary, did you know that this little guy is going to give sight to a blind man, that he's going to calm a storm with his hand? This little guy. Mary, did you know that this seemingly helpless little tyke once walked where angels trod? And that when you kiss your baby's face, you're actually literally kissing the face of God. How in the world? Would she actually imagine that? He's cute, but God? Did you know that through this little guy, the blind are going to see, the deaf are going to hear, the dead are going to live again, the lame are going to leap, the dumb are going to speak the praises of this little lamb? I can't imagine how she could. She'd have to be nearly clueless. Did you know that this little guy in your arms, nursing from your breast, is actually the Lord of all creation? And that someday he's going to rule all of the nations. Her baby is going to be a king, king of kings. And she's just a teenage peasant from a backwater town. Mary, did you know that this little, this little sleeping child that you're holding is the great I am? Which means that you realize that you are holding the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are holding your God. Actually, this is probably the second most deceptive moment of Jesus. A few years ago, quite a few years ago, actually, the magazine Popular Mechanics of all magazines, they commissioned a team of forensic anthropologists to recreate what Jesus might have looked like as an adult. So British scientists and some Israeli archaeologists studied the skulls and the skeletons of Israel, and they came up with this. Bible says that Jesus was kind of average to look at. Didn't really stand out physically. So maybe he was about five foot one, 110 pounds, a little guy by our standards, normal back then. They gave him the kind of facial features and skin color and hair color and hairstyle that would have been, they believe, typical of that time and place. What do you think? Not quite the ones we put up on our walls ordinarily, is it? Todd last week preached on one of the greatest passages in the whole Bible. He did a great job. Todd always does. But if you were here 
Did you actually ponder, think about what he, what he was saying about Jesus? He was actually trying to unpack what Paul claimed about Jesus. Did you actually try to process what Paul says about this Jesus? He says that he is the image of, the visible image of the invisible God. We can't see God, right? He's transcendent. He's omnipresent. He's not composed of the stuff of creation, the kind of stuff that we can see and hear and touch. And he said that this Jesus was making God visible in some fashion, not just through a physical body, I know, but he's making God visible, hearable, touchable. Really? Paul called this guy, this Jesus, he called the firstborn of all creation. And that doesn't mean that Jesus was born first. That's not what the word meant back then. It means that he had authority over all creation. This guy who grew up a peasant boy in Galilee is preeminent over everything. In fact, Paul said this guy is actually the creator of everything. In other words, when the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he's the one who did it. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. Paul says he's before all things. I think what that means is that he's calling Jesus eternal. Even though he was born in Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem, a couple thousand years ago, he says in reality there has never been a time when Jesus wasn't. Not only that, he says that in him everything holds together. In other words, without him, this universe would fall apart. You buy that? He called this guy the head of the church, head of the church, head of Capital City Christian Church, the head of every other church. Called him the firstborn from the dead, which doesn't mean that he was the first one to, to be raised from the dead. There were other people in the Old Testament, even Jesus raised some guys from the dead. It means that when he walked out of his tomb in some new way, he owned death. He's preeminent over everything, including death. In fact, Paul says, in him, all of the fullness of God, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In fact, later on, Paul says, in Christ lives all of the fullness of God in a human body. Now think about it. Do you buy that stuff? Even if you really can't understand it. And then Paul says, because he's all that in a bag of chips, he has the ability to reconcile God and man by dying on a cross. Hmm. You ever thought about how weird all of this stuff sounds? I mean, I have. I mean, sometimes the strangeness of it all actually strikes me when I'm up here preaching. This stuff is kind of crazy. It's almost literally absurd. I mean, do you actually believe all of the stuff the Bible says about a guy born to a virgin in a backwater town in a know-nothing province of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago that actually that was God becoming a guy with real fingers and toes? A guy like one of us, our creator with a belly button. Our creator with a belly that growled when God got hungry. Our God... 
a guy who could cut his feet on a rock, got toothaches, headaches, colds. Believe that? God who got tired after a long day would sunburn if he didn't cover his skin, got goosebumps if it got too cold, a God with goosebumps. Our God, a real guy who needed sleep, who needed a bathroom and a shave, a God in a bod, and a God who dies, which almost sounds like a disqualifier for a God, doesn't it? And if that is true, that would be Jesus' single most deceptive moment hanging dead on a cross. And the guy who claimed that his death would absolve all of you of your sins. When a guy whose followers claimed that he walked out of a tomb, they say they saw him repeatedly, ate with him, talked with him, touched him for weeks after his crucifixion. And they were willing to die for that claim to the man. And because of all that, this God-man, they claimed... He deserves our total allegiance. Do you believe that he deserves that? Do you? It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul tells us this perception of Jesus as God, this God-man, Jesus, was a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. It is. Think about what we say, we believe. Do we really believe that behind this seemingly chaotic universe, at least in our little corner of this universe filled with so much pain and injustice, do we really believe that behind all this stands a creator who simply spoke it into existence and that all this is on purpose? Yeah, we do. Do you really believe that this God who had to be huge, I mean, he's got about one billion trillion stars to manage and however many billion trillion planets to manage, do you believe that this immense God really cares about and fixates on tiny little humans like us? That he actually created us in some way special in his image? Yeah, we do. Do you believe that somehow in this, this little corner of the universe kind of metaphorically went to hell because two people, however many years ago, messed up? Do we really believe that we're messed up in part because they messed up thousands of years ago or however long? We do. And do we really think that God thought that the very best way to fix us and to save us from the punishment that he was planning for us was to subject himself to extreme humiliation and pain? He's God, right? As God, he makes the rules. So why would he do it that way? Couldn't he have fixed us and saved us from his own punishment in a way that would be a little less masochistic? Maybe. And to get it done, do we really believe that Almighty God impregnated a virgin and then chose to come into our world through the birth canal of a peasant teenager? That our Creator, our Lord, our Savior, our God, fed from her breast, was dependent on her to keep him safe and warm? We do. 
Do we really believe that when Jesus grows up, the eternal one, when he grows up, he goes out and collects a bunch of motley misfits to be his disciples. Guys, they were not the A-team. Then he goes around teaching stuff that's absolutely counterintuitive, working miracles. We believe that. Do we actually think this was all actually set up? That although he was really God in a bod, although he had all of this power and authority, this all-knowing, all-loving God decided that the very best way to save us from our own sins, the very best way to spare us from his own punishment was to subject himself to extreme torture and execution for us in our place. So we actually think that the creator, the eternal, the all-powerful God died. We do. And do we really believe his followers claim that he didn't stay dead? And do we really believe their claim that his death fixes our brokenness? And that because of who he was and what he did, he deserves our absolute total allegiance? We do. Stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the Gentiles and to billions of others who have blown him off, marginalized him, or sometimes people like us who say we believe in him but then live like he doesn't matter. Hmm. Guys, this is either the craziest con in history or the craziest thing anybody could ever do would be to blow him off or marginalize him or say they believe in him but then live like he doesn't matter. You see, we Jesus followers don't think that it's all about being religious, being spiritual. It's not about how religious we are or how spiritual we are. We don't think it's about morality. We don't think the heart of this thing is that we live by a different set of rules, a stricter set of rules than everybody else. We don't think that it's all about some new idea of God, some new philosophy of God. The heart of this thing is way bigger than any of that and way more seemingly absurd. So if you've got a Bible app on your phone or tablet, or if you've got one of those old-fashioned paper Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to unpack verse 27. Colossians 1, 27 in just a couple of minutes. While you're getting there, I'm just going to give you a run into the context, okay? If you missed this part, don't worry about it, all right? Todd preached last week on chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation. In fact, he's the creator himself. He's the sustainer of the universe that he created. He's the head of the body. He's the one who rules over death itself. He is God in a bod who died on a cross to make peace between man and God. A great text, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Here's what comes next. The Apostle Paul says, before Jesus, before God, before he was here in your life, you were God's enemies. You were separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, but God has now reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As crazy as that sounds, that's how God chose to do it. And as a result, God brought you into his own presence, and now you stand holy and blameless before him without a single fault. 
That's wild. That is your reality in Christ. But you must continue to believe the truth, stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news, the good news, this crazy story of a God-man who went to a cross for you. This good news has been preached all over the world. I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. And then Paul writes the verse, we don't really understand what it means. We wish he would have unpacked it, explained it for us. Books have been written about this verse. Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I can understand that part. That's not so bad. But then he says this. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Huh? What's he mean by that? I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the cross of Jesus wasn't adequate, that it wasn't enough. It doesn't mean that there's some suffering that I've still got to go through to pay for my sins, that there's some suffering that you're going to have to go through to pay for your sins. It can't mean that because the apostle Paul and all the other apostles consistently say exactly the opposite. Jesus took all of our sins to the cross, all of them. It's done, finished, paid for. It's grace. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So what's he mean? I fill up in my flesh what's lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Here's my technical answer. I don't know. Got a couple ideas what Paul could mean, but I'm not sure, and I don't want to get bogged down here. So if you guys have been following this week's notes that are online, I'm going to reflect on it for just a couple of minutes there, but I'm going to skip past it this morning, okay? Verse 25, Apostle Paul says, I have become Christ, the church's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God, the word of God in its incredible fullness, I present to you the word of God in its fullness, which means I'm not going to soften it. I'm not going to tame it. I'm not going to sophisticate this word of God. I'm not going to try to steal the awe out of its awesomeness. I won't try to yank the word of God from the edge of absurdity. I'm going to let it stand right there. He calls it the mystery. No kidding. The mystery. Who could have thought up something like this? A mystery that had been kept hidden for ages and generations, and now it's disclosed to the Lord's people, people like us. We buy it. Here it is. Here's the verse. Here's the part I want to drill down on. Paul says to God's people, to people like us, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, again, people like us, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The mystery, which is Christ in you. The mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now that word mystery doesn't mean to them what it means to us. And how many of you guys like a mystery? You like a mystery book, a mystery movie, a mystery show? Who done it? It's kind of cool, isn't it? All the twists and the turns, maybe dropping some clues that are supposed to lead you towards that villain who's kind of unexpected at the end of the story. Or maybe to you, a mystery is something like this. It's a mystery to me. I can't figure it out. I've tried. I've studied it. I've poked at it. I've pondered it, and it's still a mystery to me. But I don't know what it is. Been there and done that, verse 24. For them, mystery means something a little different. 
Mystery to them is something that used to be hidden, but now it's out in the open. It used to be a secret. There used to be these clues, but you couldn't quite tell what they were pointing towards. Now it all makes sense. This is kind of like the final chapter of a mystery novel. Ah, now it all makes sense. No one could have figured it out before. No one could have guessed what God was really doing. It's too wild. But there he is. There he is. God in a body. It's mind-blowing. It's on the edge of absurdity. It's ineffable, which means our brains aren't big enough to get around it. This guy, about five foot one maybe, medium build, brown hair, cut on his foot in a cold. This guy is the image of the invisible God. This guy who gets hungry and tired. This guy is not only the firstborn of all creation, which means he's preeminent over everything. He's actually the creator himself. And he's the one who sustains it, who holds it together. Take him out of the equation and everything falls apart. Go figure. This guy with a birthday, a Nazareth address, is actually eternal. He has no beginning. He, he will never have an end. There's never been a time when he wasn't. There never will be a time when he isn't. And then this guy, this man-god, this eternal one, who always will be, dies. Then walks out of his tomb. And in some way, his death makes it possible for every single one of us to find peace with God. Call that a mystery? Stagger the imagination? Impossible to think up? It's a heck of a mystery. Paul says the mystery is Christ. It's Jesus. It's not a new religion. It's not a new morality. It's not a new set of rules, some new truth about God. It is Christ. The gospel, the good news, is Jesus. And it gets weirder. He says the mystery is Christ in you. Christ in you. What do you mean Christ in me? And I kind of get the sense that God is all around me, right? God is omnipresent. God is big. It means he's everywhere. There's literally nowhere where God is not. I understand that no one can really ever run away from God because wherever you're running to, God is already there, right? You can never hide from God because wherever you try to hide, God is already there. I can understand that sometimes we try to close our eyes so we can't see God. You can't close your eyes in such a way that he doesn't see you. He's, he's, he's there. He's big, he's everywhere, he's all around us. But, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying something about Christ in us, which is different. Somehow we believe this God who's already all around us wants to take up a presence inside of us. He wants to do life in us. And what's even weirder is that he wants our permission. God wants our cooperation, which is weird. He wants our cooperation so that he can change us from the inside out to morph us, to transform us back into what he meant us to be. Wow. And then it gets even weirder. You see, in the English, this word you can actually mean you singular. In Greek, there are two words for you. There's a singular word for you and there's a plural word for you. It can either mean you singularly or all y'all, right? Good word. One word. That's this one. This word is plural. This isn't just for 
me. It's not just for people like me. It's for all you all. God's offer is reckless. He doesn't care how old you are, what sex you are, what color you are, who your parents were, how much money you have, where you've been, what you've done, what's been done to you. God wants inside you. He wants to root out from the inside whatever's messed you up. He wants to morph you into what he meant you to be. He cares about you and you and you and you that much. It's mind-blowing that the creator of the universe would want that for little old me and you, no matter who you are. He wants in you. For some crazy reason, our creator, our transcendent, omnipotent God lets us lock the door. So you can let him in or you can keep him out. And even if you let him in, you can keep him out of parts of yourself. Which, by the way, if the rest of this stuff is true, is the real crazy. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of glory. That word hope doesn't mean what you might think it means. I hope one of you guys wins the lottery, pays off the church's debt, sends me on a vacation to Hawaii for a week or two, a month or two maybe even. That would be cool. I hope Cowboys win the Super Bowl and the Oregon Ducks win the college national championship. Not much chance for either one. We're talking about a hope, right? Just a wish. I hope we baptize 200 people next year here at Capital City and average over 2,000 people on our worship services. Wouldn't that be cool? That's a great hope, isn't it? It's not the kind of hope Paul is talking about. He's not talking about wishes, pipe dreams, delusions. For the rest of us Jesus followers and Paul, our hope is an expectation we expect it to happen. We know it's going to happen. You know why? Because the omnipotent God says it's going to happen. And if God says it's going to happen, you can take it to the bank. What the omnipotent God says he's going to do, he's going to do. It's going to get done. That's our hope. It's a confidence. It's a profound confidence. Christ in you, the hope, the profound confidence of glory. Christ in you, which gives you the confidence that you're going to taste, you're going to experience God's glory. What's that mean? I'm not sure entirely. Got a couple of ideas about what it includes. Sometimes when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about his immensity, his limitless power, his indescribable beauty, his perfect holiness, his soul-bending grace. That God wants to live inside you. He wants to give you a taste of what it feels like to do life with God now. And he wants to give you a notion, a confidence, an expectation that someday he's going to do life with you in a way that is unmitigated by your sin. Transformed into who you were meant to be. You care? I don't know whether this hope of glory is our confident expectation of life with Christ in this world, that it's going to be way better, and it will be. 
I don't know whether this hope of glory is our confident expectation that Christ in us means that someday we're going to experience something way beyond life on this earth in a new heaven and a new earth. We will. Guys, if Jesus died for our sins and if because he, when he walked out of the tomb, he now owns death, then when he tells us that he's got something coming for us that is way more spectacular coming, take it to the bank. You know what the hope of glory is? You know what it does? We lost an incredible man last week. A week ago, Friday, Kerry Prather died. One of our elders for years, an incredibly gentle, strong Christian man. He loved his family, he loved his church, he loved his God. About two years ago, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. The cancer won for a moment. Kerry had this hope. This hope of glory. Because Christ wasn't just around him, Christ was in him. And because Christ was in him, he lived such a good, powerful life in this world, touching so many people. And because Christ was in him, because Christ was in him, his life has barely begun. And that's our glorious hope. A better life with God now, a perfect life with God forever. You buy that? What if it's true? What if all of this seeming absurdity is true? What if Jesus really is the image of the invisible God? What if he really is preeminent over all creation because all things really were created by him and for him? What if this guy, this Jesus, really was the eternal God in a body, head of the church, firstborn from the dead? What if inside this body of Jesus lived all of the fullness of God? How? I don't know. You know why I don't know? Because my mind is this big and God's a whole lot bigger. What if he really did care enough about us for some reason that he came into our world to take our place on a cross? God's way, why he went to the cross is not nearly as inexplicable as why he loves any of us that much. Apparently he does. And what if his resurrection sealed the deal? What if his resurrection proved that he was who he said he was and that he can do what he promised that he would do? What would it be worth to you? Paul was consumed by it. He was willing to go anywhere, suffer anything to tell people about this Christ in you, the hope of glory. How much does it mean to you? Think about it. Is there anything you'd be willing to, to suffer for? Anything at all? Anything you'd be willing to die for? I hope so. Because if you're not, your life is little. And you're living for too little. What would you give if this mystery, this gospel, this word were true? What would you be willing to give up if this mystery was true? What would you hold back from this Christ in you who wants to morph you into what he meant you to be?
Guys, if you let them in, what do you lose? If you don't let them in, what do you lose? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm telling you guys, the only thing crazier than believing this whole thing is not to. To blow him off, to marginalize him, to say that we believe in him but then do life as if he doesn't matter. That's crazy. And it won't cut it. We either bend our knees or we go to war. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, the mystery of Christ just boggles our minds. Who he is, what he did, how much he loves us, what he was willing to give for us. It's beyond our imagination. And for all that, we just give you thanks. And I pray that you give us the wisdom to do our life with him and for him. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.